If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's first. Blubbity Blah. The Blubbity Blah. Sending out good vibes. Blubbity Blah. Good vibes. Blubbity Blah. Good vibes. Good vibes. Good vibes. Underneath breaths of deep gratitude and prayers for guidance and protection. And put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track. Shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. The Garden of Eden is definitely Egypt's Nile Delta River, the yeah. valley, and that whole area. Yes, because it literally is, at, going back to the word Eden, means desert. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. We are going to be chatting with Peter. Peter the Enigma Seeker from Enigma Seekers over on YouTube uh, a little bit later. He tracked us down on Facebook. I think we're one of his first interviews, so this should be uh, an interesting one. He really, uh, if we were his first one, he did very well. And uh, we got our own uh, enigmatic Graham Dunlop over here coming at you from BC again. Yeah. Hey, buddy. Thanks. You're in the oh, harshest man. lockdown in the country now. Oh yeah, yeah, they're left. They're left. yeah. My mom and my sister are blown away by what's what uh, what they're keeping up with over here in BC. It's so weird because well, it should have been right. Fun. I mean, they're the California, Canada. Yeah, I know, but at some points they seem to be opening up and they seem to be talking about information uh, contrary to the narrative. You know, this was when Bonnie Henry actually said herself that only two people outside of old folks' homes had died of COVID, and this was like, you know, last a year ago. So there was things that told me like, oh, they're they're not gonna take this as authoritarian as we thought, but uh, of course they have now. So we'll see. We'll get you back in Alberta soon. Then you're going to Saskatchewan, even freer. Well, you have to notice yeah. if you notice a, uh, an increase in freedom on your way over. I mean, I guess you don't really notice. The big thing will be well, when you come okay, back to be no I, more masks. Can I tell you what? So I had to stay overnight because I was late coming out here, right? And uh, I had to stay overnight um, at a little tiny, uh, little tiny motel. And it was, it was at in a ski in a ski area, right, Revelstoke. So there's like the ski hill. There's a lot of young people skiing, and man, these people came in to the resort with their professional-looking masks, you know, all like fancy masks and they just it was just disappointing just to see all these young people coming from the mountain full on full in on you know the masks they let you stay i just can't i i have a hard time with it dude i just without your vax passport yeah i was able to stay without a mask without a vax passport the guy behind the desk didn't have a mask which was good then he put it on later but i mean it's just weird man it's just weird and then he like couldn't, I was saying, he won't the be able game to eat, store, and the game store, she made me put on a mask and put up, pull it up over my nose, like she was following me around the store, tell me to put up over my nose. Like, what do you think I'm spraying shit out of my nose? Ah, she just likes telling people it what to do. I know, and especially it's gonna, short, and she said, stocky, aggressive looking dude. It's going to change in March first. It's going to change. I'm like, and you that were you just have to be bossy boots for the next week. Then you seem like you'd be fun to boss around. Maybe that's it. That was easy. They just I'm see not going to fucking fight They see it coming. Right? They're just, just like, I, oh, I got they, this, motherfucker. 
but you could see the fear in her eyes. She's like, how do I deal with this non-mask person in the game store? Like, so that's, I, you know, I don't want to make people uncomfortable, but it's just getting, I, it just creeps me out. The only people with masks on and shoppers yesterday were the people working. That's great. That, so that's, again, that's, that's great. That's just outside of Calgary. That'll be different than the game store, right? The, the game store, the people. Oh, the game store. These nerds might never get rid of masks. I mean, the game not. store might keep they masks love forever. being masked up. I mean. Oh, yeah, they're Dungeons and Dragons. You guys are like exhibitionists. What's that? No, we're not. Then it's not all D and D. It's just all the games. It's all. It's that whole the gaming same. community. It's all the right? same. It's all the same. Don't call it a gaming community, because the gaming community has you've been usurped by the uh, video gamers. I don't know what we call you guys now. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's it's yeah. It's pop culture kind of thing in a way now. It is not pop culture. I think that's a little aggressive. It's more like. Um, it's become pop culture. The whole the entertainment, gaming, it's all together in a thing that they have to conform. It's no longer the rebels, like you know, video games are rebels. Well, in the eighties, we were the ones that were you know called geeks and stuff, and we oh, were yeah. in mom's geeks, basement playing, sure. not rebels. playing games, right? Not rebels. You're getting these very confused, <laughs> very different. I never saw some of my buddies, because my buddies used to play D&D all the time. I, I made it through like 10 minutes of one game, and I was like, nope, I'm out. I thought this was something very different. Because it sounds cool. They're like, we're going to play Dungeons and Dragons. I'm like, fucking cool. I'm in. Now, and then what I'm did like, you like about it? And I'm like, what? what is this? And I'm like, this is Dungeons and Dragons, bro. I was like, all right. What did you like See about it? Well, I don't understand. What do you mean? It's just, just not uh, for me, playing make-believe. I just never really been into it. You're not, but there's a whole I, world I, the a point of the story was, make, I never at one point was like, these, this is rebels. rebels. I guess what I meant is we <laughs> went against the grain, right? Back then, because nobody, you know, you, you know, people would look down upon, they, they looked down on the geeks back then. It was not cool to be a geek. That's they what I mean. Do. They still do. They just pretend they don't. Now the nerds are the cool ones. Now the nerds are running the world. You think they're getting all the pussy too? Oh, who knows, dude? I, Can you still say that? It's not even, you know. I just get it canceled. <laughs> Maybe we can't. We can't be canceled. <laughs> Uncancelable. You heard it here first. I Drop mean, a hard R a, then, Dunlop. This was a great chat with uh, with Peter about. He was. He's. He's got a theory that that Egypt. I wanted to pull up a map actually Egypt before I started talking. I forgot. Um, his theory is that. Um, you know, Egypt, Atlantis is in Egypt, you know, and uh, I don't know. I kind of like it. I kind of like the theory. I thought it was it was fun to discuss. Um, Curtis Steiner. I'm going to try and Steiner go over to that part of the world here quickly. I, I'm yeah, just we're going to go over to that part of the world in November. I'm, I'm fascinated by all the, all this, this Middle East and Egypt and how. Uh, oh, it's just fascinating to me so he he thinks it's kind of like at an island in the nile near cairo well i thought i think he thinks it's that whole Nile delta no no i think he he thinks he says there's an island there in, in uh in the nile no no he says that the the uh nile used to loop around so it kind of seemed like an island and but it's that whole oasis of greenery Oh yeah, you think so, eh? Yeah, 
I don't. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I mean, I guess they'll be able to find out in like 20 minutes when they hear him say it. Want to bat? Should we bat? Uh, yeah, sure. Fifty we'll dollars. I'm just looking for the island. That I know. <laughs> There's no island. <laughs> this is the easiest fifty dollars I ever made. Speaking of uh, making fifty dollars, if you guys been getting some value from our little podcast here lately with our little Graham Dunlop, uh, head over to grimeamerica.ca slash support today. Sign up for a monthly, make a one-time donation, whatever you can do. We appreciate it. Some people do get confused, think we're a free podcast. Technically, we're not. We do put it all out for free because it's just easier. And then uh, hope that you guys, if you're finding some value from it, from our value, uh, if you're if you're finding some value in what we provide, maybe it's adding some value to your work day, making it less shitty, making your commute go by a little quicker, keep you company during your workout. I don't know. You tell us. Spam Graham, tell us where you listen to the show. And uh, grab your device right now. Head over to grimerica.ca slash support today and decide what uh, the Grimerica show is worth to you. Is it worth a buck a month, two bucks a month, 50 cents an episode, $100 an episode? You decide. Grimerica.ca slash support. Send some value back our way today. We would love you for it. I'm looking at the island in the Nile right now. It's, there's a bridge called the Long Live Egypt Bridge that goes how about, across how long is this it? island, and it's in it's in smack in the middle of the city. How big city. is it? It's, how big the is the island? It? It's 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 it's, a, it's an okay size. I mean, what's an okay size? It's right, you got to scale a, there. You got to scale. What's the do scale? I have a scale. I have a scale. Are you on Google Maps? Oh yeah, one. It's about two kilometers by four kilometers. So the entire civilization of Atlantis was on a two kilometer by four kilometer island in the middle of the Nile. It was seventy five people. And uh, they just got the cold. They got COVID. Well, it, it was maybe bigger back then. Oh, yeah. How big can an island in a river really be, though? Well, the river could be bigger, right? Back then, twelve thousand years ago, it was huge. Anyways, you know what? The, the funny way. thing was, I was so. Of course, this happened to me again, dude. And I'm not. I'm not just saying this to advertise our books or anything like that. But I'm reading the books. After we had this discussion about the pillar of Heracles, because he's sort of saying that the pillars could be many different things. It could be not, doesn't have to be at the entrance to the Mediterranean and the West there. It could be in Italy. It could be. And then, of course, what am I reading? I'm reading that book six of ancient Egypt, the light of the world. And it says here, I, I mean, I can't believe I'm going to send this to him because it's, it's hard to believe that this is this is the book I'm reading the next day. There's a legend of Heracles relieving Atlas as sustainer of the heavens, or in the original, the ceilings of the double earth. Atlas is the Egyptian Shu Anur, the elevator of the sky. And the relief of Atlas by Heracles is equivalent to the relief of Shu by the sun god Ta as the sustainer of all things in Amenta. When the pillar of the earth, or Ta of Amenta, was added to the pillar of heaven. So then I'll skip past this bit because it gets into Horus and and Heracles, but, and then he gets into saying that Greek legends also assert that Heracles separated two mountains to form the two columns or pillars that were a dual figure of the twofold mundane and celestial mount. This helps to identify the double columns with the mount of earth and the mount of heaven. Many illustrations could be cited of these two pillars erected at the entrance to the temple or the house of a god. Heracles, says Herodotus, was worshipped in a temple at Tyre. And in the temple were two pillars, one of fine gold, the other of emerald stone, both shining exceedingly at night. 
These are, to say the least, somewhat suggestive of the green mount of earth, the Egyptian mount of emerald, and the golden mount of heaven, which survive as the green hill far away and Jerusalem the golden in the Christian hymns. Anyways, just I, I feel like there's a whole other thread that can be followed with these with these pillars. You know, maybe maybe it's hidden. Maybe Atlantis is 30 feet under the earth, like he's saying, closer to the action than we think. You know, maybe it's just like right under the sand right there. Exactly. I said, bring some shovels to Egypt. Contact at the cabin dot com. If you heard me mention that we're going to Egypt a couple of times, I want to know what I'm talking about. I don't think there's many spots left, but there might be a couple. And I mean, it doesn't hurt to throw your name on the list because I mean, shit happens. Some people might back out have to cancel is it is it sold sorry i missed that is it it's very out? close to sold out but uh i don't think it's actually sold out yeah very very close yeah mind you have to go get new passport photos for the kiddos all right you want to do your uh oppo or you want to do yeah. your email yeah let's do it i got a long email to read i'd like to read it uh yeah, I'll be counting on you it's really to nice help me watch so, nice the kids su- out there in Egypt, support so. oh yeah i'll help you watch the kids yeah i've been there before Uh, Good morning, Graham and Darren. I have spent a very enjoyable Saturday morning in bed, drinking coffee, waking up slowly, listening to your outlawed episode with Al from Forum Borealis. I recently enjoyed listening. What? Forum Borealis. I recently enjoyed, oh no, I really enjoyed listening to Al. And once again, the value that Grimerica gives to my life just keeps on giving. As I know, I have access to hours of content on the Borealis podcast. I would never have known without you looking another amazing, booking another amazing guest onto your show. You also introduced me to Damian Eccles, which in turn led me to discover Dion Fortune, Israel Rigardi, Manly P. Hall, Napoleon Hill, and the list goes on. Napoleon most recent, mo, mo, and, the, and the, hey, just so everybody knows, there's also uh, uh, the, a good Manly P. Hall audiobook that we've done called The Secret Teachings of All Ages, which is basically like a, a sort of a, a Bible tome of, of ancient mysteries. Um, but I say Bible because it is like a really thick tome of just, it's got everything in it. Uh, most recently Darren's recommendation of no more Mr. Nice guy has helped me to help someone very close to me. And of course, help myself study and practice of the works of the people listed above has led me to find a faith in my life that I didn't always realize I was searching for. I need to say thank you to your show and the podcasting community in general for the selfless support and promotion of each other's content, which gives listeners like me a seeker's sat nav on the search for the road to faith over fear. The past few years has been tough. I've been in recovery from addiction to drugs that carry the most possible stigma, the worst possible stigma, and which left me feeling lonely and ashamed and shamed. My addiction was in reflection relatively short, around two years. I continued to take care of my day-to-day responsibilities to my family, sometimes only barely, and I caused so much pain to so many people that I love. I continued to work through my managerial job at a small construction company, which not only carries a lot of responsibility, but more importantly, my performance directly affected the livelihood and financial security to the six families of the workforce. 
Some would say that I was a functioning addict. I would not be so quick to agree. I was selfish, ugly, frightened, out of control, and causing pain and fear to everyone around me. My recovery is now 16 months successful. Listening to podcasts, and particularly Grimerica, and the content and books you have introduced me to have been so critical to this success. Without knowing it, you have both been with me, supporting me through the most difficult time of my life. Ironically, at the same time that I gave that I that I you gave me the most ironically at the time that you gave me the most I was not financially able to support you every time that Darren asked for support I spoke out loud I will do mate as soon as I can I promise I will I became an outlawed subscriber a few months ago and I send you my support with nothing but love and gratitude the faith and strength that I've found in myself as a result of studying the writings of the people I discovered by listening to podcasts has directed me on a path of light, love, and positivity. I'm learning the immense power that giving to my fellow man holds. I now regularly donate food parcels to my local food bank, give my time and support to those that I can see need it, and also try to help others in any possible way when the circumstances arise. And like many others, I would have previously walked on by to people and places that were not my concern. Changing this world starts with changing yourself. If these words do reach the ears of your audience, I know that there are so many people out there that want to change this world for the better, but feel lost on where to start. Start now. Start around you by giving whatever you have at your disposal, your time, your care, your labor, your money. Give it to whoever you can. Give it to whoever you can see needs it, regardless if you know them or not. With all I've been through, I have belief that we are all of the same family. We all have the same needs. At times, some of us are up and some of us are down. Reach out to others up. Reach out to help others up. This leads me on to say that those of you who haven't quite managed to give your financial support to Graham and Darren, and I know there are a ton of you out there that want but want to but just haven't managed yet, that purchasing, <laughs> here it is, that purchasing adult brain audiobooks has been another way for me to say an extra thank you at the same time as learning and taking further steps on my journey into self. We need shows like this to connect, to be part of something, to be amongst similar souls, give our collective strength to secure this oasis of truth and non-agenda entertainment. Buy the books, listen and learn. If all this does ever get if all this does ever get taken away, we will always have our knowledge, always have our books. Write down your thoughts, your lessons and learning. Talk to your children and your loved ones about what you've experienced. I can understand the importance that certain ancient peoples gave to the oral teaching of history. Try and algorithm that, you tech-controlling fucks. I didn't write this to you thinking or wanting it to be read out loud on the show. It just went that way. I just wanted to say thank you and explain the reasons why you both and your show mean so much to me. To be honest, writing about my addiction on what could possibly be a public platform has taken my newfound faith over fear. As a quick side note and getting back to Al from Forum Borealis, it was so entertaining to hear you guys struggling to understand his accent at times. I live in the UK and particularly part of the UK that was ruled by Danelaw. Maybe this is why on a whole people from England can understand most accents. We have such a vast range and such a small island. We come across so many different accents each and every day of our lives. 
Al sounded like he learned English in Ireland when he was talking about algorithms messing with his show titles and said, what the fuck is going on here? He sounded like a man born and bred in Dublin. Few people thought he was Irish. Yeah. Yeah, that's Few people thought he was French. Scandinavian Irish uh, uh, mixed there. Few people thought he was French, too. <laughs> Keep up the good work, boys. Uh, thank you so much for everything. If you do make it to the UK, contact me con- for contact at the castle. I'm publicly promising my help in any way possible. And just before I go, Graham, you might be interested to know that I am a rural Leicester. Leicester? Leicester? I think it's just Leicester. Leicester? About 80 miles from Skipton, a distance that you boys will drive to buy breakfast, but a bloody... Oh, yeah. A distance that you boys will go will drive to buy breakfast, but a bloody long way on our winding little roads, Darren. But like lunch? Take care, fellas. We'll be there by Enter lunch. Anthony. Instead of breakfast. Thanks, yeah, Anthony. It, he, I think he's just saying that like it, it really seems like it's only 80 miles. But when you get on those windy little one roads that have barely enough room for two cars to pass by, it takes a lot longer than you think. Can I bring my truck? Well, you wouldn't want to even turn no. a, drive a truck around. No, you wouldn't. We'll just no, get it's... like a miniature uh, something. It's they're 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 driving experts there, man. And the, the European drivers and the English drivers are just amazing. They go, they they just pass each other. They pull. They, they you can see you just pull over. You're so aware of what's going on. Like when they're when there's a car coming, that you just pull over and let the guy go down the middle. Like people are constantly just adjusting their driving to make room for other people. Fun. It's fascinating. I drove around England just looking for castles with my family. It was fantastic. Are you ready? So. Anyways, just to mention, like we, I don't know if you mentioned it in your donation begging segment, but Grimerica Outlawed is a completely separate podcast feed. You can search it in any podcast player. You can also go to the website and, and listen to it. And when you contribute $6.39 a month, you get the whole extra second half of Grimerica Outlawed, which is a completely separate feed, right? That's just 73 or 74 episodes now. Another extra yeah, one coming great. up and tomorrow. We- and we get into some deeper conversations about what's going on in the world, current events a little bit more, kind of geopolitics and uh, deep state and secret societies and all kinds of stuff like that. Then, of course, there's the Rockfin stuff as well, which we'll have a little teaser for here later. Uh, a couple of highlights from our episode with um, Leslie? Lindsay? Oh, are you putting that out in today's episode? Or? Yeah, I'll put it in today's. Oh, are you? Okay. So I got to timestamp that guy pretty quick. That's Lynn. 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 Lynn Hodgson. I knew yeah, Lynn Philip Hodgson about Camp X. Yeah. It was a fun one. It was a good one. Uh, do you, and you got an oppo? No, I mean, let's do, let's do a quote. I, let's keep the oppo uh, for next week. Saving the oppo? Yeah. It's the profound quote of the week. Who said this? And maybe who said this and when? Let's let's do when as well. When as well? Yeah. The nation's immediate problem is that while the common man fights America's wars, the intellectual elite sets its, its agenda. 
Today, whether the West lives or dies is in the hands of its new power elite. Those who set the terms of public debate, who manipulate the symbols, who decide whether nations or leaders will be depicted on a hundred million television sets as good or bad. This power elite sets the limits of the possible for president and Congress. It molds the impressions that move the nation or that admire it. Kissinger. Close. Nixon. A few were years they, were after. They buddy, re- buddy? Were they the two buddies? Was uh, Kissinger Nixon's secretary of state? I don't know. Neither I do don't I. think so. Uh, this is uh, after a few years, after a few years, uh, a few years after resigning as president. Oh, right. He resigned. We need more people to resign. Bunch of them. <laughs> Good luck. That'll never happen anymore. No, no matter how. No, they just get away with everything. I mean, maybe that's the key. They just knew like after Nixon and Watergate and all that. Right now, they just fucking get away with 10 times as much. 10 times as worse. Nobody fucking because of exactly what Nixon said there. Bingo, bango. Kissinger served as national security advisor and secretary of state under President Richard Nixon. Sounds like within a degree. Mm hmm. All right. Well, big thanks. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this chat. We like to say we're going to play that uh, little, a couple little highlights from our chat with Lynn on the, on the Project X, which will be coming out on Rockfin right away. Brady said he should have that done in a day or two, so that'll be on Rockfin right away. Rockfin.com slash America, which is pretty much the only place to see anything video from us these days since we, since we quit, quit streaming, take the pressure off of the live uh, stuff. And uh, then enjoy the fantastic chat with Peter from uh, Enigma, Enigma Seekers. The link is in the show notes. Check out his YouTube channel, which is fantastic. I think he's got a new one coming out in a couple of weeks. You've seen, you watched them already? All, all three? Uh, I watched two, three isn't out yet. Um, part got, three. I have a of teaser the, for of it. The, of the, what? I, I have a, an advanced copy of it. I'll send it to you. Oh, do you? Yeah. Of the Enigma Seekers in yeah. part three? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like it. I just like looking at Atlantis in different ways. I mean, we've all, obviously we talked to Randall and people that believe it's in the Azores. And if Which you're heating this on Peter's channel, because I think he said he was going to repost it, then head over to grimerica.ca today and check out all our stuff. Other than that, enjoy the chat with Peter from Enigma Seekers. And it's close to it. So basically what we're talking about is a World War II spy training school uh, in Canada. And... Um, the training of secret agents to go in behind enemy lines and do the kind of things that are being done right now in uh, in the, in Ukraine. Um, it's very it's very similar. And as a matter of fact, uh, the uh, the camp trained agents to go into the Balkans. So uh, they you know they would have been very familiar with all of the countries that uh, we're talking about today. So uh, they trained over five hundred secret agents at Camp X, uh, dispatching them. Uh, on a regular basis uh, for the uh, thousand day life of, uh, of Camp X. Uh, so here's the thing. In 1940, Churchill, of course, was fighting the, uh, 
the war against the uh, Axis powers. And uh, with the little, very little help other than Commonwealth countries such as Canada, but not the great wealth and might of the United States. And so as Hitler went along and through Europe and picked off one country after the other, he obviously had his sights on Great Britain next and then beyond that. He has uh, something called Operation Fish. I don't know whether, you know, some people know about this. Many Canadians don't know about this. Uh, But uh, during that same summer of 1940, um, Churchill had to set sail with a number of ships that are mentioned here on this page with $8 billion in gold bullion, Britain's gold reserves, probably the equivalent of a uh, trillion dollars today. And it sailed during the northern or along the northern route of uh, the Atlantic, uh, staying well away from uh, the German U-boats of the uh, Wolf Pack. One Canadian that uh, uh, most Canadians have, have never heard of uh, is a man named uh, Constantine. Uh, General Constantine, uh, was a very important man during the Second World War, uh, one, one of the key players on, on a world level. And uh, that's because uh, he was responsible for two things. Number one, Britain's gold reserves, and two, Camp X. He was the liaison between the British and the Canadian uh, military, Canadian Army, and all of those who were, were at Camp X as uh, instructors or uh, commandant, et cetera, et cetera. I, I was talking about Station M. M stands for magic. And that's because when you talk about James Bond and, 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 and all the things that Ian Fleming learned uh, of operations of special agents and, and secrecy and, and all that type of thing. Uh, and of course he had, uh, he had the lab where Q would take him through the lab and show him all these toys and gadgets that they were making uh, for agents uh, to use behind enemy lines. Well, that really existed. And uh, in the basement of Casaloma, I was able to show the owners that uh, all the things that they did down there, and again, as I just mentioned, on the evening of December the 6th, 1941, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Roper Callback in the center with his kilt on and his senior officers arrived on the shores of uh, Lake Ontario uh, to open up uh, Camp X. Uh, each one of these fellows that you see on, in this photograph are experts in a field. They're British uh, agents, British instructors. Uh, but they're all experts. They're experts in uh, unarmed com- combat, silent killing, uh, small weapons, um, map reading. Um, Morse code. Morse code. And um, the next thing is uh, the hydro operations. The, uh, the hydro operations, this was the uh, uh, most powerful uh, radio station uh, in the world at the time. The, the, there's a, a man in this photograph uh, in the upper right-hand corner, and it's not me, <laughs> but it's a guy named Pat Bailey and uh, Benjamin DeForest Pat Bailey. He was the, in my mind, the most brilliant Canadian uh, ever born. And um, two of the fellows that I, I, uh, I met over the years, back in the 1970s, uh, Joe Galeni on the left, codenamed Gordon, Andy Durovitz on the right, codenamed Daniels, 
uh, two Canadian Hungarians, both trained at Camp X, uh, both uh, sent overseas uh, into missions, uh, missions into Hungary. Uh, they were both captured by the Gestapo, uh, brutally tortured at a, a special uh, prison for SOE agents, and uh, managed to escape. Uh, on the same day and make it back to England and then subsequently make it back to uh, Canada. And fortunately for me, they lived uh, just uh, a few miles away from where I live today. So um, I met them back in the seventies. And of course I was able to tell their entire stories in books. Cool. And And this this is your latest book. My latest book is, uh, is that complete story plus uh, plus many more things. Uh, I didn't even touch on the topic of uh, South America, but, um, but the whole South America operations of uh, Sir William Stevenson. Uh, I've covered everything in that book. from Enigma Seeker on YouTube. Welcome uh, to Great America. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, this will be fun. I was watching some of your videos that, I mean, you know, you're challenging some of the our sort of stuff that we've done on Atlantis, and, and I think it's mm-hmm. fantastic. We can have a chat about Egypt and Atlantis and what whatever your, you know, your interests are in that subject. So thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, I ran across you guys from, you know, watching your podcast on Randall Carlson, so... That was really nice and got me into your channel. Yeah, that's been great ever since we we, we started with Randall like what six uh, six or seven years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we heard him on Joe too. We're like, oh man, we got to talk to this guy. There was just something about the way Randall described the catastrophes, you know, that yeah. really kind of just put things in a different perspective. And he's still pretty articulate for you know for his age. I was surprised <laughs> he still can explain things really well. I mean. My grandpa, you know, at that age, he wouldn't be able to go into depth <laughs> too much and stuff. Yeah, and I have a sense he's just getting going too, because I mean, he—it's not like he's been, you know, doing this in front of people. Uh, well, I don't mm-hmm. know, Darren. Actually, maybe he has for a long time, but I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's only been doing the sort of the podcast and the new media for six or seven years, I guess. Yeah, yeah, possibly ten years. Yeah. I can't remember. I know he's been on Graham Hancock. I mean, talk with Graham Hancock and Joe Rogan like over. I think it was over five or six years ago. Yeah. The first time. And now so he's doing a weekly show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. With the bros. I was on a live stream last night accidentally. I didn't mean to be, but whatever. <laughs> well, yeah, you I know see. what happened? So when we met with Randall in, in, uh, in Colorado and one of our events there, it was fantastic. And I mean, before what led up to that is we were doing month. Was it monthly zoom calls there? I think it was monthly zoom calls it with all the every Monday by the event. end. Every Monday, that's right. Every Monday by the end. And so we were talking around and the Snake Brothers and, and we're saying, you guys got to keep this Monday thing going all the time. Like just, you know, you, the people are loving it. Um, it seemed like a great sort of thing to just keep the Monday show going. And then that turned into Cosmographia, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Yeah, I wasn't sure how to say um, your channel at first. I thought you were connected with Cosmographia for a second, but I wasn't sure if you guys were separate channels or um, had a connection with their channel. Yeah, we're the rogue, you know, Canadians. So, 
Totally, <laughs> okay. totally, totally connected to them. We're so buddies what with you them interested all. In, in the ancient mysteries and stuff? Uh, well, I study, I have a master's in landscape architecture from Iowa State University. So I also have been to Japan um, back in high school. So like visiting some of those ancient sites in Japan and then just kind of learning about, you know, ancient landscape um, architectural wonders around the world. You know, from Persepolis to Egypt, um, then some of the, you know, the modern gardens of Persia. Uh, so that really got me into it from there. But then but what got me into my channel really wasn't anything to do with ancient mysteries at first. It really was exploring phenomenons uh, because I have personally seen a UFO. Okay, and now I got my opinions on it, so you guys can. No, hey, we, all, hey, we, hey, we but all do, and we've seen them too. So this is great. It's it, when you know when you start to see something really freaky stalking you around in the middle of the night, um, and then actually trying to communicate with it or summon it with a flashlight, and it worked. That really opens your mind, and it, I can't prove it, of course, because you know the supernatural paranormal is just far more <laughs> smarter than i am so but yeah i've had some paranormal experiences and i've seen ufos and back in 2011 um and like three or four times but since then i've learned a lot about it and now i find no need to really try to prove it existence in the sense of whether it's extraterrestrial or the supernatural paranormal hypothesis i think it's something possibly in the middle um but I'm leaning more supernatural now. I used to believe extraterrestrial, but since the government is now basically coming out and saying, yeah, there's something out there, I'm going to leave it up to them to go gather the data from universities and present the conclusion in the next century. <laughs> the, the, the conclusion that you will think it's the opposite of? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think not I, you, but not I feel you, but like a I lot know of the UFO what it is. Community? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, that, I've, I've watched Third Phase of Moon. I've seen all their some of their videos. They're fake videos. They're potentially authentic videos. I've seen. Um, oh, what's his name? Security Ten. All those guys. Um, and I've looked to videos in the past and um, photos. And I've, I've come. For example, there's one photo I remember finding one of a UFO taking a picture over Marquette, Michigan. It looked like a picturesque photo just over the lighthouse. And I, as someone who knows how to use Photoshop, there's certain things I look for to figure out if it could be potentially fake. And there's just like this purple hue outline sometimes you see in, in UFO photos. And if you don't see that hue, then most likely it's a direct selection cut and paste it in there. Um, if you do see that little transition when you zoom into pixels, then it's like, okay, now this is on my radar. So I'm going to keep that and document that. And I've also talked with Linda Moulton Howe a couple of times when I was document, documenting the mystery boom phenomenon or USN's Unidentified Strange Noises that happened around 2011, 2012 as well. Um, so that was interesting. And I personally have had that experience when I saw the UFO. Um, could get on video, but yeah, um, I've had some paranormal experiences, but from there, having those experience me, experiences started to make me think, okay, how does this connect with the Bible, with the supernatural, not taking things too literal, like not taking everything in the Bible literal, but not taking everything that Plato says literal either, and finding some middle ground, and is there, is there some truth in that middle ground? And yeah, it seems yeah, like there's something out there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. So, yeah. th so let's just can we dig into your UFO sighting a little bit? Like you're saying, you saw something and you're trying to communicate with it, and can you describe it in some more detail? Like, was it a craft, oh, yeah. or a light, um, or was it was it a silent? big red was orb of light? Noise? A big oh, that see we and did it was that producing loud booms, and I summoned it with a flashlight. It's on my porch. I've tried three weekends in a row. On the third weekend, that's when it started to respond. 
So it starts out with faint flashes of light. I use a little flashlight. So it's not, I found out based on what um, Dr. Michael S. Heiser talks about when he talks about the supernatural. Um, it's not the it's not that they're seeing the flashlight, it's somehow there's some kind of psychic connection there. Summoning, this idea of summoning the paranormal, the, it gets into that occult stuff a little bit. And it can be dangerous, because it could be something demonic. It could be something more interdimensional, extra-dimensional, that's way beyond extraterrestrial. That could be screwing with our civilization. So you've got to be careful. Um, and yeah, I summoned it, and it responded with three flashes of light over my house at night, around 10 o'clock. And then um, I went to the other porch. My camera started to die. I was waiting for it. And then a big red orb about the size of a very big beach ball or a small car appeared right over the woods about 200 feet away, just over the treetops. I could actually see the red light reflecting over the treetops, and it was just moving slowly away. It wasn't producing the booms at that time. It was like about an hour before it was making booms. At the time that um, there was cannons being shot uh, around, this was like in July, so there's sometimes the park that shoot little cannons, and this was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, but I could distinguish that it was changing in direction, and I knew it wasn't the fireworks. Fireworks have a very particular crackling noise and distance, um, but this was changing in direction, and it happened multiple times over other parts of Iowa that was reported in Warloo, Iowa, Burlington, Iowa, and these mystery booms just start popping up. And I started researching, like, okay, is there a connection between UFOs and these mystery booms? And me and Linda Moulton Howe were trying to piece that together. Um, and we figured out that, yeah, they're somehow producing these booms as a way of creating a mystery to spark our curiosity to psychologically affect us in the long run. Like, this has been going on apparently since the 70s, but they flare on, they flare off. They do these weird little behaviors. Um, so there's not just UFOs, there's USNs. And that's, I coined that phrase, USNs, unidentified strange noises. But there's a lot of fakery out there, too. Got to be aware of that. Well, geez, that's fantastic. I mean, Darren, yeah. do you remember that? When we started up the podcast way back when, that was when those mystery booms were pretty. Do you remember that? I Calvary do one, vaguely I remember yeah, the Edmonton. I think there was one up north in Edmonton, but somebody said that was fake, but it had the guy in the high vis and he was in the woods recording it. It was a boom. I know it was a, it was, it wasn't, it's more it of a like, a, it's more of a, a thundering, not quite just a boom, but many booms. Like it's, it sounds like I would, I would like what I was thinking is there's some kind of underground tunneling happening and it was echoing up through the, but then some people said they thought they heard it from the sky too. So, but this isn't yeah, a new phenomenon. I mean, this is yeah. Charles Fort was writing that about that in the 1800s. I mean, lots of booms coming, lots of mystery booms. Graham summons yeah, UFOs I, too. I think it was. I think it was. I don't know if you guys know YouTuber Dabu Seven, um, but he's kind of a podcast guy too. But he's him, me, and Sheila Aliens. I don't know if you know her. And Linda Moulton Howe and a few others were kind of documenting these mystery booms. And we, you know, they started theorizing, oh, is it underground? But it was very consistent to the point where you could tell this was aerial. It was very audible to the point that it actually shook, it shook the ground. It was so strong, such a concussion way that it was a, you could tell it was a point source and it shook the ground. Sometimes it would be catched on USGS, sometimes it wouldn't. And sometimes the local media would say, oh, it's just, the, you know, it's a sonic boom from the Air Force, you know. Oh, in, in Canada, this is when Canada started to make this phrase, frost quakes go viral. And then ah. the U.S. media starts to pop and use that same terminology when 
it actually started to flare up in a place called Clintonville, Wisconsin, and other places in New England. It actually reached uh, uh, NBC with um, Tom Brokaw, but not Tom Brokaw. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Um, so they were reporting at national news because it actually reached such an intensity that it started to get the national media's attention, but then it died down. But what's interesting is they would produce these booms. There was a pattern, but you can't notice these patterns unless you look at the long term. And they would flare up in the wintertime. And then they would die down in the summer. And then they would flare up again. And then people start to associate with these frost quakes. And there's no, I'm sorry, but there's no ice jam in the world that can cause a sonic boom that can shake the ground. I, I don't believe that. I took a little basic geology. But I, so, yeah, it, it's a weird phenomenon. But putting that aside, I mean, that was my first inspiration into getting to mysteries and enigmas. Um, but then from there, I started to, you know, think a little bit more about my faith and a little bit more about the paranormal because that I started to also have paranormal experiences. Um, about four years ago, I've had, I've actually personally seen a little wooden ball in my classroom at Iowa State University with my friend that I did try to document on a video. And it was teleporting around, and I knew that was a poultry guy. So I'm like, oh, my goodness, this shit's real. I mean, I am Catholic, so I'm probably a little biased, but at the same time, we're pretty atheist about this stuff, too. We're like, oh, wow, this shit really is real. <laughs> I mean, it really starts to hit you when you actually physically see it. Um, it was a wooden so ball? A wooden ball? It was, there was something, you know, there's electromagnetic energy that was controlling this wooden ball that's used for modeling, for uh, landscape design, you just put on, you know, cardboard and balsa wood, things like that. Um, and it was teleporting this ball around the room. It would just, you know, it would drop it from the air and then just fall on the ground. And I'm like, what the hell? And my friend was pretty shocked. I mean, he's he's not a uh, he, he's a Muslim, but he's not a strong practicing Muslim. And he was freaked out. And you know, he, he thought he blamed me because you you're, you have this channel and this stuff's coming because of you. But so there's a whole video on that I made. Uh, that's like 30 minutes. The original video was would have been over an hour trying to capture this, but. Yeah, the paranormal, the supernatural, and that's why, you know, I wear this. This is, uh, you know, the ox symbol of Egypt, um, symbolizing magic, and to me, also, you know, Jesus in some sense. I am a Christian, I'm Catholic, but I'm not, a, you know, evangelical in the sense I don't believe the earth's 10,000 years old. I don't believe, you know, uh, take the Bible too literal. There's a lot of complications. You look at the Bible as like a library. I think Randall Carlson said that. I think it was Randall that might have said that. Um, and it's it's a compilation of many things that's very complicated and compiled together over you know centuries, if not you know thousands of years. So it's it has mysteries in them, you know. And you know Freemasons like Randall Carlson, they believe in the Bible too. They believe there's mysteries and enigmas in there. Um, and we and Catholics and Freemasons agree that there's definitely a supernatural realm or there's something beyond the physical. But at the same time, it does have very physical effects. Okay, UFOs are very tangible. At the same time, they also have behaviors that behave almost interdimensional. Like they don't seem to fit the characteristics of extraterrestrial. I used to believe that, but I don't see the evidence pointing to that anymore. So I start to lean more towards the paranormal or supernatural hypothesis, or what YouTuber Suspect Sky might call like interdimensional, extradimensional um, beings. Um, some could be demonic, some could be angelic, or maybe something more in the middle, like us. Hard to say, but in many cases, there's some freaky stuff that seems very, uh, doesn't have the best intention for us. And others, it's like you're not sure yet, you know. So in Egypt, ancient Egypt, going to Egypt, you know, has always believed in magic, in the supernatural. This has been taught, and, you know, Catholics adopted this, Persians adopted this, this knowledge that came out of Egypt about the supernatural has proliferated into Rome, into Persia, and 
and I uh, this is where I hypothesize getting into Atlantis that the story of Atlantis is probably coming from Egypt in, in an actual location somewhere in Egypt. Um, and because we know Solon, you know, he got it from Egypt, from Sontius of Sias of, um, in the Delta. So, and then from he, from there, it, you know, the translations can get messy. People can kind of misinterpret. Then politics gets involved. So, you know, Plato could um, reinterpret it to fit to his times because that's the time they were starting to discover the, uh, the Straits of Gibraltar. Um, you know, the... Uh, pillars, pillars of, so-called pillars of Hercules, which you know, I don't think there's any pillars over there. <laughs> but that's the time period when you know they started to push Atlantis farther and farther away from its original source. So that's where I hypothesize that I think Atlantis really is probably Egypt, and Graham Hancock and Robert Paval and others have said that potentially even YouTubers like Ancient Architects say that there's a potential that Egypt really could be far older. But the problem is there's so much recycling going on because you've got such a density. And this is where I hypothesize, um, based off what Ethiopian Christians and Muslims believe, as, um, that the, in order to find Atlantis, you have to find the Garden of Eden. Once you find the Garden of Eden, then you can find Atlantis. Because Atlantis is just a name. It's just the Greek name. But there's many other names. The word Anatolia derives from Atlantis. The word Atlantia from Ethiopia derives from Atlantis. But it's not that Atlantis was called Atlantis to the original Atlanteans, which even that word may not be correct. So that's the problem. When you disseminate translations over thousands of years, names change. But you can go back to an original source, and we know Gobekli Tepe is you know, potentially over 10,000 years old, uh, 10,000 BC. So that's in the region of Anatolia. So it's possible those people migrated down into Egypt mixed with the, the natives of Africa and create a new civilization. Of course, they probably warred with each other as well. And these kingdoms, this, um, this confederation of loose kingdoms started to form in the Garden of Eden. Garden, or Eden in Hebrew, means Gan Ba'eden, which means the desert. So Eden means desert, the Garden of the Desert, the Garden of Africa. So... In this oasis that is the Nile Delta region and in uh, the river as well, in the valley, it's just the largest agricultural oasis in the whole Middle East. People want to say Mesopotamia, and it was a professor from Missouri State who wanted to promote the Mesopotamian hypothesis. I'm like, at looking at this as a landscape designer, or landscape architect, I'm like, where's the abundant amounts of silt, though? You need silt, and the Bible hints this. Adam came from the earth, the silt, the land of Kemet. Egypt means the black soil, um, and that is so important for civilization. You have to be, most civilizations start on rivers, so that's a good place to start. And then from there, you can see that the, the geography of Egypt, which is basically shaped either as a lotus symbol or a snake. In the Bible, they hint about snakes symbolizing supernatural creatures. Um, so yeah, I hypothesize that Atlantis and Eden is coming from Egypt. And specifically in the region of either Heliopolis or the Cairo region, but it's gonna. But the problem is, if that really is Atlantis, Cairo is so old that almost all that stone has been recycled. The Romans took stones, the Persians took stones, the Egyptians themselves, um, and even up to uh, Constantinople, Egyptian megaliths were brought up to there. 
So that's the problem is all that stone from the original Atlantis could be disseminated into the Mediterranean region in the past, you know, four or 5,000 years. And that's why you can't find it. So <laughs> big hypothesis, but yeah. Yeah, I got. I mean, I got a million questions. Darren, do you want? <laughs> Darren, do you want to say anything? Because I, I can isn't that where Matt Apocalypse didn't Matt Apocalypse Matt Apocalypse thought it went from the Azores to Egypt. Uh, well, he Matt Apocalypse was Matt Apocalypse was was drawing some lines no, and geometry. Thinking, maybe I'm from, thinking of someone else. Yeah, it was Matt Apocalypse drawing drawing lines from the Azores into Egypt, right? Yeah, to the to the uh, to the Sphinx or the actual Giza Plateau, and it goes right to where people say Atlantis are in the north in the north part of the Azores. Um, and yeah. then, and then he also went to Gobekli Tepe, which was a thousand and eighty miles to Gobekli Tepe, and then parallel straight across to the top of Azores. Sorry, so to the north. Oh, of that's Azores. right. He thought that the yeah. that Gobekli Tepe and the Giza Plateau were sort of tied in together to to mirror what the Azores used to look like, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, I see. I just have trouble believing the Azores hypothesis, is because you know. I don't think geography really changes that much in the past 20,000 years. You know, maybe the coastlines, of course, but it's an island. And civilizations, we know from the Mississippi Mound Builders, the Han Chinese, um, from the Indus Valley, Egypt, Mesopotamia, um, even, um, you know, almost every major civilization starts on rivers. And many professors say that's probably where we need to start. And if you look, one way of looking that, Plato was describing as an island, you could say that the Egyptian valley of the Nile Delta region is an island of green in a sea of sand and water. And we know that there are megaliths found off the coast of Egypt. And, And now those are probably not as old, but potentially those have been broken down, recycled to fit to new statues. If they came from original megalith, they could chip it down and reduce it to something a little smaller. Off the coast um, uh, in the Mediterranean, or or, or south? In, in the Mediterranean, south. yes. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think that's where you would want to put a capital city, though. I think the specific entrance of the Nile Delta fan is very narrow. It's such a strategic geopolitical um, area that's so important because it goes into that fan, and it's in the shape of a snake or a lotus flower, such a crucial symbol in Egyptian mythology. Um, so. It's possible that it was an island, but within the river. And we know, like, Cahokia, for example, was potentially destroyed by massive flooding by rivers. And rivers were such a major, had major effect on civilizations from, from the Chinese, especially the Yellow River and the Indus Valley. So I would say the probability of advanced civilization being destroyed on a river is higher than something out in the sea on the Azores where there's a lack of resources, there's no real fresh water, not enough to have a population in the hundreds of thousands. Even today, modern day today, we there aren't million, tens of millions of people living there. It's just not as habitable. But Egypt has that temperate, even back 10,000 years ago, it was still a desert in that area, but that, but that silt was so important that came up from um, the rivers of the, the Blue Nile and the White Nile that came from uh, the volcanic regions 
of Mount Kilimanjaro. You know, that brought such abundance amounts of silt. And you, if you don't have that silt, you cannot have a civilization. And so that's why the Bible seems to emphasize the idea that Adam came from the soil, from the earth. Is the idea that you're eating, you're establishing agriculture, you're eating from the earth. Um, and I think that's very crucial. And, and also, even the idea that mankind itself kind of came out of Africa, potentially. So um, I think that, yeah, that's a crucial artery. And that from there, Western civilization went out into Rome. Eastern civilization went out into Persia and then went, spread into China. And I think it's such a crucial strategic geopolitical point that so people you, can't ignore. Do you think that, the, so that does that change the age of what people think is Atlantis from being like pre-Younger Dryas to afterwards then as well? I think it is, I think Atlantis is old, yes. Um, but I don't think it has to be specifically to what Plato says. And I don't think I don't even think you need the younger Darius because if you're talking about a small city state that's like a palace moat system similar to like Angkor Wat, let's say Atlantis was more like Angkor Wat but bigger, or similar to the round city of Baghdad that was um, pretty much destroyed by the Mongols. <laughs> um, but that was that city is called um, Zalam, I think it was called. Um, similar to like Solom or Zalam, I mean, city of peace. So that that architects who designed that city in Baghdad may have been originally inspired by an older source and possibly from Plato, possibly from other Islamic sources, which um, in Islamic traditions, they also talk about this civilization was destroyed, the city of Ad or Iram. And of course, people, again, take those place names and fit it too literal to the original to those place names like in Saudi Arabia. But come on, Saudi Arabia is a complete desert. There aren't any major rivers. There's no way you can establish a major civilization. So the word Iram and, and Ad must have come from an original source. And we know Egypt was the most powerful empire in that time, before the Phoenicians. And we know linguistic anthropologists tell us that the origins of language, specifically written language, almost every Western script and Indian script derived from an inspiration from Egyptian hieroglyphs. This has actually been documented by many linguistic anthropologists. And I think it's Professor Dr. Michael Heiser has also emphasized is that it, it, something is coming out of Egypt, and we know that language somehow was dispersed. So the idea when the Bible says the Tower of Babel, well, maybe it wasn't Babylon, but maybe there's some reference that there was a tower. Well, what civilization could build towers? Okay, a ziggurat ain't that impressive to me as an architect, okay, landscape architect. Now, an obelisk tower like the like the one in Washington, D.C., why did the Freemasons make a giant obelisk tower in Washington, D.C.? Because they wanted to emphasize, the Freemasons want to emphasize the idea of Neo-Atlantis, the resurrection, which an obelisk symbolizes resurrection of a civilization and a connection with God, connection with the supernatural. Um, so that's where I think that if you're talking about this tower, I feel like a solar obelisk tower would be the original source. But over time, other cultures like the Sumerians and the um, Persians, you know, they take those stories and they fit it to their lands, their identity. And so the whole issue with Russia and Ukraine, they're trying to control who is the real identity of that land, you know. So that has been going on for thousands of years in geopolitics. So th this idea of cross-pollination of languages is the problem. And this is why we can't take Plato too literal, but there are some major clues that Plato gives us. But it's not just Plato we should look to. There are other legends, too. Um, legend of Dwarka, Legend of Shambhala, Agartha, Asgard. All Hyperborea. These have original, 
yeah, all these names have an original source, and we can know through migration patterns that the ten thousand years ago the population was very small. So, so in in the hundreds of thousands to maybe a few million over the whole planet. So, but they the, but the most concentrated population region in the world at that time in the in area wise wasn't China. It was actually Egypt. It was such a perfect place. Um, and the temp- temperature was cooler back then, 10,000 years ago, but it was still dry. Um, it's also debate what the idea of the green of the Sahara. Uh, that yeah, right that's inside. what I was going to ask you but, that a while ago, if it was a desert really or, you know. I, I think Jimmy is being a little misleading here when he says, oh, the green of the Sahara. Okay. And the landscape design, when I'm researching this, I'm like, okay, like green as in like Arizona green. Because that's basically what it was back 10,000 years ago. Yes, there are plants, but not abundant amounts of vegetation like Missouri. Okay, no, it was still an arid desert. But the most densely planted region was in the black soil. And that was the Nile Delta fan in the river valley of the Nile. And that's what is there? What's that island in the and uh, the uh, river that you point to in your second? The video? island itself, I think, would be modeled off based of what we know in other presence precedence of ancient um, moat systems, like the ones in Japan, the Imperial Palace of Japan, uh, uh, Tamman, uh, I mean, Imperial uh, City of China, um, and also Persian Gardens. We see this idea of moat systems, Imperial moat systems. Um, so I think Egypt, I mean, I think Atlantis was designed in a circular form, um, and I think it was an Imperial Palace moat system in an island on the river. So if that's the, the Nile, case, the Nile, the Nile. And I do think it was on, yeah, it was in the region of Cairo, somewhere in Cairo. The problem is, you know, people aren't going to let those stones go to waste. They're going to use them up, especially if it's all mostly limestone. Only the monuments uh, would be megaliths. The majority then, of the city well, would be limestone. And then what about your your analogy on, not analogy, the, your theory on the um, the pillars of Heracles being in, in Italy instead? Because when you show that, when you show that, or, sorry, I don't know if that's your theory, but it was in one of your videos. No. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but it was interesting because you showed the Mediterranean with the different sea level. You could see the elevations below. And there's mm-hmm. that whole spot of, was it was it Greece? That seems like it would have been above water. The whole, that whole area of the no, sort mean, of the northern mediterranean i feel like that would have been um just the coastlines i mean you i mean yeah, Noah's yeah. already mapped this out and they've mapped it to you know maybe for example the now delta fan goes out let's say ten thousand years ago it would go out another 10 to 20 miles that's the estimate yeah that's so still, there's I mean, a that's lot like, so crete might not have been, i guess stuff. crete might not have been an yeah. island i guess is what i'm saying and, well the topography there is quite a bit different it's very sharp and on, on the cliff sides and bluffs so it's not as fanned out so the the the, the sea level rise wouldn't be as as significant yeah um, i mean the yeah the drop level of that so i i don't it still would be islands there there would be a bunch of islands yeah, the idea yeah, yeah, of yeah. the pillars of hercules sometimes it can be so vague to the point of meaning just the juxtaposition between two islands that threshold space between islands or mountains and the greeks didn't didn't really know the early greeks like solon didn't really know about the so-called pillars of hercules that wasn't named until the phoenicians got over there until and then the romans are the ones that really advertise that to be the new so you, pillars of hercules so you're thinking the pillars could have been just basically two island or two islands or two land masses that you're going between that's how the ancients would have seen it. They would have said sometimes they might be a little monument there to Hercules, and there will be a, you know, a little temple there, and that would refer to that temple as a pillar. 
and showing this kind of political threshold space. Like this is the Greek world order. Once you cross this, the Greeks really don't control this. And it's more mysterious. So anything beyond the pillars of Hercules can refer to the connection um, near Istanbul. Um, the straits, the straits around there could be seen as pillars of Hercules or anything past Crete, because they could see those spaces between those islands. Um, but when you go way out to the Mediterranean, you're really pushing it far out to a point where the majority of Greeks did not know about that land until the Phoenicians started exploring. And where did the Phoenicians come from? Well, the Phoenicians are a derivative from the Egyptians. We Even the Jews, the original Jews were not, you know, white Russian Europeans, they were from Egypt, and they would have looked very different. Um, so th that's why I think people get this so confused, is when you keep wanting to push it out to the Atlantic, but we know, based off migration patterns of population densities, that there's a Pacific point source, and that's where this idea of the fanning out, where Egypt is almost like the perfect symbol for that. It fans out into Europe um, and into Persia and, that, and Iran, that region. What was so, that spot? What was that spot? Northern of Italy. Sorry to interrupt you. That bit, northern, uh, not northern Italy, western Italy, past Sicily, and those two islands. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think was, so you don't think that's Atlantis? So no, it's no. too arid. It's you have to have rivers. I feel like it's the first thing you have to start with. If you don't have any major rivers, you can't move megaliths. The Egyptians moved thousand tons of obelisk using the water. They had they were able to make large barges. We know that historically that they were able to do that. Listen, um, it's hard to find evidence of that because that would have, been, would have been so valuable that the Romans took it all away or the Persians took it all away. That's the problem. Um, but there is some evidence to point that the Egyptians were able to do this, move megalithic you know, structures because of water. Um, and it, it, if you're in a rocky island like the Azores or the islands, uh, I forgot the name of them, um, uh, west of Italy, it's just not a very pl good place to have build a civilization. You can build some megaliths there. Yeah, there are some there. But also, even the idea of megalithic knowledge, architectural knowledge. I mean, Freemasons really believe this. They can't prove it, of course, either. But they do believe that Egypt is the source of architectural knowledge. That the idea of being able to figure out how do you move a, you know, a five-ton block. Okay, one ton, uh, maybe... Cultures from other regions of the world could figure it out, like Easter Island. It's basalt. It's not as heavy, you know. But, you know, a granite five-ton block, you have to have mechanical systems. You have to have rope. You have to have copper. You have to have um, uh, designers to figure this out, managers. not man Logistics. I mean, yeah, all the logistics. And they weren't just done by slaves. They were done by people who passionately wanted to do this. But, you know, they were paid in food. Um um, bartering uh, as well. So, but until later Egypt, then they resorted to sl slavery. It looks like because they got their pride a little too high there. Um, so, I do think Atlantis was in Egypt, and I don't believe the mainstream archaeologists when they say, "Oh, it's just it's Santorini, the supermassive volcano." No, no, that doesn't go far back in time, and we know that um, civilization goes farther back in time because of Gobekli Tepe. Uh, but it is possible that the Santorini Thera eruption is the catalyst for the exodus. That's, the dates are so close, okay? Yeah, they say, oh, but they're 200 years apart. Well, what's your margin of error? Okay, I'm finding <laughs> luminescent datings that's like 500 years apart. So, 
And they're not. So that was the collapse. Like you're saying, that was the collapse of that age of Santorini. Now, there, I Europe. think the Thera eruption was the beginning of the collapse of the of the Bronze Age collapse. Yeah. yeah. Um, that also basically was the beginning of the end of Egypt and the beginning of Rome. And Greece. I mean, that's um, so close too. I mean, Egypt to Greece. I mean, if something popped off in the whole mountain, that whole mountain mm-hmm. exploded. I mean, that's that's pretty huge. Uh, and the jet stream flows would have gone from uh, west to east. Yes, so they would have experienced that ash, um, and they would experience the tsunamis. Then, um, but that's still—I don't think that is the catalyst. That's that's like the second phase of the destruction of Atlantis or Neo Atlantis. The Egyptian dynastic periods I could refer to as Neo Atlantis, but they didn't rebuild Atlantis. They rebuilt. Um, they started to build the Pyramid Age, whereas Atlantis may have just been a city-state in the river system, um, in the beginning of the Pyramid Age. Uh, and I, I also do think there is some connection a little bit with the more controversial aspects of the so-called Aryan race, which I don't think is referring to just referring to white people. <laughs> okay, I think it's something a little more mysterious, a little more freaky connection with the giants as well. I do think there's some connection with that, uh, but I think more evidence has to come up. But again, I refer to maybe Dr. Michael S. Heiser on that because he does think that there's some weird connection with many mythologies. Even Native Americans have them, these lost kind of race of humans that were like mutant humans. And if you believe in the supernatural, if you believe these UFOs or the paranormal things, um, angels and demons are screwing with mankind, it's possible they tried to tamper with humans and then they did it in a very strategic location. Because they're not all powerful, maybe they're limited in their power. So maybe they try to mutate humans in Egypt and create this Atlantean race, these six-fingered, elongated skulls. Potentially, they were just a minority. Because if they're a majority, we would have found a lot more evidence, and it would it would be a lot harder for the government to cover it up. But if it does seem like there's some connection, but I do disagree with YouTubers like Atlantean Gardens, who really is. A little bit more of a white nationalist, I'm going to have to say it. Ah. But he he has done research to show that there is something to this Aryan race idea. It's not something the Nazis just made up. It's something that goes back farther in history. There is a connection with the Bible, um, and there's a connection with the supernatural and the paranormal. And possibly well, it's Native also in the, in, the, in the Vedics, too, right? I mean, they talk yeah. about that. So Yeah, so there's a lot of civilizations that reference this. There are these giant humans. I don't think, you know, some evangelicals want to say, oh, they're 30-foot-tall giants. No. Okay, every Native American legend, every article from the 18th century um, is always shown that it's something like seven to eight feet. Okay, it's not giant, giant, but still, that's abnormal. And it's very consistent that you're finding all the dozens of articles in the 18th and 19th century are pointing to some unusual race of humans that were abnormally tall and it's possibly they were dispersed um, out of the Garden of Eden, out of Atlantis, due to a major natural disaster that the Islamic tradition hints at as well. The, the, um, uh, the, the one after the Younger Dryas, like a 7800 BC, I think I, you had it in one of your maps? Uh, yes, yes. Channel? There's a new research point that there was a major tsunami deposit um, around Israel and Egypt around 7000 BC. So this is where I think you don't need... The Younger Dryas was the catalyst to of the beginning sort of like civilization it actually kick-started civilization it wasn't the catalyst to destroy civilization it really somehow kick-started it killed off the saber-toothed tigers killed off the woolly mammoths all the big animals that were you know very nasty and wanted to kill us probably and i yeah i agree with graham hancock we did not kill off all the mammoths okay that's a bunch of bullshit i took some anthropology you know at the university of iowa 
And I just never fell for that. I'm like, really? I, I don't think we could do that. Our populations were just too small. Um, but if, it, you know, Plato references elephants, so I use that as a clue. I'm like, okay, well, that's hinting to Africa. And I feel like, you know, mankind kind of sort of came out of Africa. And I feel like, you know, Egypt is such a strategic artery for people to get out of Africa. They, everybody in Africa would have to go through that corridor, that highway, in order to get out. There's only really two directions towards the... Um, Oh yeah, you uh, can't go. You can't Yemen. go. You can't go west. You have to go through the Middle East, right? Basically. Yeah, yeah. You basically have to go up. Yeah, Israel, up the Israel, up follow the coastline of the Mediterranean. And or, yeah. The current theory is that more is, um, I think, is uh, the Gulf of Aden, which is another reference to um, the Aten Eden or Eden. <laughs> There's a uh, linguistic connection there, I believe. Uh, but they went out that direction. But I don't believe so. I think they would have followed more than Nile. would have been easier because it's flat. There's only a few areas where you have to go down some cliff sides of, of the waterfalls. Um, so overall, but the water also flows. It's very unusual for rivers. It flows from south to north. So if they had small little boats and canoes and stuff, they would easily be able to float down that way. And they just have to kind of uh, meander around the waterfall regions and then get back on their boats. Um, using ropes and stuff as we do today uh, when people are exploring the Nile. So yeah, the river, the, the direction of the flow of the river forces people to go that direction because of the way boats flow downstream. Um, well, in this case, it's going north, so it's a little unusual. It's the only river, only major river in the world that does that. It's very unusual, and that's why we have this idea that European civilizations seem to be more advanced. Well, the reason is they were closer to Egypt. They were closer to Atlantis. So they were, it's the geographic proximity that gave kind of birth to European culture to really explode out. But not just European culture, Chinese culture um, as well. But they went, they took a little bit longer route, of course, but they also probably followed the coastlines. Most migration patterns tend to follow the coastlines to stay safe. And once they, um, the, the, the Chinese um, hypothesis with Egypt is a little more complicated. I can't remember. Well, the yeah, because I feel like that. I feel like the but Chinese must a video have been way older, right? I mean, I feel like they must. Have been I don't older. think so. Like, could they have evolved? Could they evolved as into as Asians in only ten thousand years? Or I mean, how, I think how it's is that? well. Look at dogs and cats. We can we can hybridize them, and you know, in some way through breeding, very easily, and they change very quickly. So humans can do that too. They can change very quickly. Yeah, yeah, through things. hybridization. Yeah, that's yeah, hybridization. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. So, so well, have I you think ever heard, it's possible? Have you ever heard of Fenton's work, Bruce Fenton's work into Africa, or is that prior to you know, like I feel like you're talking about out of Africa being fairly recently, but Fenton's work is it was I'm yeah was I've sort never, of destroying the main Bruce Fenton because he he kind of said that. The articles that people are relying on, the studies that people are relying on for this out of Africa theory have been debunked. And it's really uh, just a paradigm that's sticking around for no reason. Like I, I, he well, thinks that it came from Australasia, more of like Australia, like the, where they found the uh, the uh, the Hobbit bones and stuff. Uh, yeah, well, that's that really going. I mean, at that point, I really don't care because that's going because yeah, that's really going back like far 50, 60,000 years, whatever. Yeah, no, like millions of years. Well, yeah, okay, the Hobbit, yeah, it did exist around 50, Florenzis, years ago. but it doesn't really matter because uh, there was really no, I don't believe there was any advanced civilization before the younger giants. Oh, you don't, I um, don't it was know. the younger giants that kick started us yeah. somehow. 
affecting the climate and everything, killing off the dangerous animals, except the ones in Africa and Australia, I guess. <laughs> but you no, know, I there's so much. So what? Okay, what about what about uh, Cremo's uh, out of artifact, out of place artifacts and stuff? Does that give you any any pause to I've, sort of I've reevaluating? Seen like I haven't found too many. I've only I've seen I've actually personally seen the London Hammer in Texas. Wasn't too impressed. <laughs> I mean, I mean the evangelicals want to promote it and you know say, oh look, this is proof. You know, mankind walked with dinosaurs and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. No, I, I don't go to that kind of extreme on the conspiracies or ideas. I just there's no need to. Like, I mean. As a, I'm a Christian, but I still follow basic science, and there is a lot of evidence for out of Africa when it comes to hominids. We're finding so many hominids in Africa, and we have millions of people that live, tens of millions, um, I'm sorry, hundreds of millions in, in Europe, but we haven't found that many bones that's going back millions of years. You think you would run into them. If there's hundreds of millions of people living in Europe, you think eventually someone would rant, run in a bulldozer, but we haven't found anything. But you go in Africa where population density is even smaller, but you happen to already run across dozens of hominids. So that, that's a little, that's where I'm thinking, okay, the probability seems a lot higher in Africa. So, but it really doesn't matter because civilization itself didn't, you know, didn't start until about, you know, after the younger giants. Um, and that's where it, it doesn't really matter if we came out of Africa or Australia. Okay, eventually they're going to yeah, find yeah, yeah. Right, right, the most right, suitable yeah. location. Right. It's not right. that e- it's not that um, it's not that the Egypt is close to Africa and the hominids all stayed in Africa and they evolved and they established Atlantis. No, it's it's. It, I mean, that's going back millions of years, and that really doesn't matter. It's just that the people just tend to cluster around coastlines. And it happened to be a strategic location. It's it's the geographic determinism factors that lead a civilization to pop up real quickly. And Egypt is such a dense area with abundant amounts of silt and agriculture and such a confined space that's very defined. This idea of a garden, a very enclosed space, it forces a civilization to interact more. Um, the different tri- the different native tribes of southern Egypt and northern Egypt had to collide. They warred with each other. They fucked with each other. All that stuff, and they gave birth to a civilization. And then they warred and fucked again. <laughs> do you think? Do so, you think that the so? Do you think that the Garden of Eden is, is Egypt then, or the Fertile Crescent, or no? The Garden of Eden is definitely Egypt's Nile Delta River, the yeah. valley in that whole area. Yes, because it literally is at, going back to the word Eden means desert garden. As the landscape, you know, architect, I look at garden means very a defined space, and yeah, in that green space has been there for tens of thousands of years, and you know, the Sahara has fluctuated from savanna to desert, savanna to desert for you know millions, of, hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions. Um, it's about three million years when it was actually truly tropical. Okay, that's what most um, geologists and uh, you know professors who study this stuff they they say yeah when you go back three million years ago yeah yeah Sahara was like a jungle okay like the Amazon but no going back ten thousand years ago it was actually more arid because there was less water in the atmosphere because it was locked up in the ice age so and it was just coming out. So people were fleeing. Everybody in Africa was trying to find an oasis, and they're literally fleeing to this large oasis sticking out of the Middle East. Um, you can't go, you know, you know, you're, you really can't. You either have to go south, which is hard because the rivers flow one direction. So the rivers are forcing people to go a certain direction because the fish also tend to flow in that direction. 
um, depending on their migration patterns. And the animals will flow with that direction too to get those resources. So the the, the direction of the water and the the cliff sides of the Nile Valley really is conducive for a civilization to pop up. And um, the, it starts to build a population. It comes down to population, basically. Egypt was a very populated region. Even to this day, it is lit up because there's nowhere to go. They're trapped within the garden, and that's what made Atlantis so vulnerable. They were trapped literally by their own paradise. Darren, do you have any questions before I keep going? No, you go ahead. I'm, I'm, it's good. I like it. I, I, I mean, I, the race thing could be because you're not talking about like 10,000 people fucking trudging over into China. You might have had like 20 people show up in China. It might have been one yeah, clan. Might have been one clan that all looked the same. It's like if, if all the fucking Dunlops show up someplace, everyone's going to look kind of Dunloppy. You know, they're going to have that gram look to them. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, they do, there is, a, I sort of agree with... Plus uh, evolution Roberts. happens fast, I think, in some of those senses. Like, you know, it seems pretty clear that that people, that the more sun you're exposed to, the more melanin your skin's going to eventually start to produce. The farther north you go and start dealing with winter and stuff like that, the, the less those melanin your skin's going to yeah. produce. I mean, I think I just it could happen fast, fast. And, and that... The population you got to think that ten thousand years ago is maybe what one fucking one thousandth of one percent what it is now. So well, they they estimate that Egypt specifically, I know, um, but like Anatolia, they, yeah, they had city, small city states um, that were emerging on Gobekli not city states, but you know settlements, I guess, on Gobekli Tepe, and they had you know probably maybe five thousand people or more because there was uh, only two billion people 000. on this. What was the population in like nineteen eighty five? 1985 it was under say six billion maybe i think yeah, it was less than that wasn't it or what was the population in 1950 maybe six then yeah, it was I'll, five, look yeah. I'll look yeah. it up right now i bet so, you it's like i bet you in 1950 it was less than half of what it is right now well yeah you gotta keep in mind that our population mainly exploded because of the discovery of oil and that the chain reaction really exploded our population <laughs> Electricity too. Well, yeah, you know. but yeah, China has always had a massive population going back thousands of years. But their civilization really didn't start to around, I would say, maybe three thousand BC. All right, but let's Egypt, get some guesses, bitches. Nineteen fifty. What do you think the population was? Uh, four point eight. Five point five. You guys are way high. What? Way, uh, way high. Three point five. Still way high. Three point two. You're still way high. I in don't in nineteen fifty, the population is the world population in nineteen fifty is two point five three six million. Wow! So now million or billion? Sorry, yeah, <laughs> billion. Yeah, I know. In nineteen hundred, it was like only one point two billion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you go back to like even eighteen hundred, which is fucking two hundred years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So in 1800, what am I doing? I'm, I'm too high. Not high enough? All right, 1800. I mean, obviously, this isn't going to be bang on or anything like that. Yeah, the farther we're back in time, you go the less accuracy The, the less it's going to be, but uh, around 1 billion in 1800. So the, the population's gone up tenfold in 200 years. 
So now multiply that by 10 twice, and you're getting back to 10,000 years ago, right? Or you multiply it by 50. Well, you can't go by that rate, though, because the rate really jumped in in the 20th century. I mean, 19th century, because of the Industrial Revolution and everything, and discovery. Oh, yeah. And how much do you think it jumped? A bunch of old people started living longer than you. How much do you think it jumped with agriculture? And stuff like that, you know what it, I mean? Like, I think I think, it, I think it's feasible to think that 10,000 years ago, you're talking about, you know, a couple of million. Over the whole planet. Yeah, yes. over the, whole, the entire next, planet. Yeah. But over, in the regions of, like, Europe and the Middle East, that's what you're trying to say, where would be the densest region? And when people think, oh, you know, some people won't believe Europe is the origin of all civilization. I'm like, Europe was under ice. I mean, it was it was cold. It's not a conducive place to live. Yes, there was agriculture. There was little sporadic gardens people would have. So what about multiple? If you're only going back, I guess it's tough because you don't think there was multiple civilizations, but there seems to be evidence that up in Tiwatiwakan and uh, up in Peru and stuff like that, that that those high elevations, there was was, uh, civilizations going on there as well. Do you think it's possible that we were holed up in Africa and Peru and Australia and places like this waiting out the Ice Age? No, I, I, I still think that the, the American you know, civilizations, they basically came from Polynesia, possibly some from Europe, um, the pre-Celtic civilizations of the uh, Salutrians. Um, but yeah, I don't believe that there was a civilization over 20,000 years in South, South America. Now, there may have been people, but I don't think there was enough population to really kickstart it. it did, Cahokia, I mean, the Mount Builder civilization... Um, really didn't get started until around 3000 BC. And it wasn't until around 2000 BC that uh, Poverty Point was really established. Um, and then the civil uh, population of about, I think they estimate maybe 10,000 people may have lived at Poverty Point. Um, and that was a big mountain there in Louisiana. Um, but so it, it takes a while because you got to get those populations to interact. And the problem with America is just, it was just so vast. And it was, and the populations did start in the old world, and they were migrating in in multiple migration waves. Some by boat, probably some through the Bering Strait, some probably from Europe, even I believe. Um, and but it took a while for that to happen. But they seem to hold on to similar legends, as Dr. Michael S. Heiser I keep saying. Um, he's the linguistic anthropologist that seems hence he he thinks that there's some kind of linguistic connection that their legend seems to be hinting something similar to what the Bible's referencing and to what Shambhala, Agartha is also referencing. So where do they get that idea? Well, Dave Matheson would say that they all got it from the stars. And that's the reason that these myths around the world, because you got the very sort of specific constellations that have been dancing around us for forever and ever. What's the one he likes so much? Fucus. He's going to listen to this. So I got a shout out to Fucus. I mean, okay, what's more impressive, a star that barely moves in the sky or an uh, unidentified ball of light coming in your face and playing hocus-pocus at you in the middle of the night? What's going to affect the civilization more? Something that's going to freak you out more. Okay, so people did, you know, worship the star, use the star, not worship the stars, um, but yeah, they referenced Well, they the did, stars. they worshiped the sun. I mean, it's all, it all goes back no, no, to no, the no, sun no, no, god, no. Solon and the sun gods and all. Egyptian, this is a misconception that even Freemasons are trying to kind of uh, explain to people that the Egyptians did not worship the sun in the sense of, oh, that big ball of light has intelligence. It has agency. It has a will. 
No, it understood that it repeats. It repeats. It repeats. It doesn't say they go over and over and over. It never freaking changes. Rarely. And they can sort of, okay, the earth tilts a little bit with precession and all that. Yeah, there's some adjustments and all that. But it doesn't do anything to freak you out. Okay? So when you see a ball of light with intelligence, they correlate that supernatural creature, that UFO, with the sun. Because they're saying these solar beings with wings, they use the sun as a symbol to describe actual supernatural creatures that they were trying to summon. When you build pyramids, the idea is not a connection with the stars. The idea is a connection with actual supernatural freaky creatures. Okay, Shamans, like at Poverty Point, at uh, Cahokia, they would build these giant mounds, and they would actually try to summon supernatural creatures. And the way they do it sometimes is evil ways. Okay, they would you do human sacrifice by the thousands, you know, chop off a baby's head and throw it down the pyramid. Okay, to get their these these creatures' attention, and sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. And I practiced this experiment. I didn't chop off a baby's head. What? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Peter! Just, my, just the- my dog. <laughs> But I used a flashlight, and I kept signaling over and over and over. Eventually, I got something to respond, and it freaked me out. Okay, this was a big ball of red light, and it, I could tell it had agency. And then a, two, about two weeks later, it appears to my sister and freaks her out. I called MUFON, explained the whole case to them. Um, so, yeah, there's actual weird phenomenons that with agency, with intelligence, um, that the ancients were very aware of. The Egyptians were very aware of. And of course, people get so uh, mixed in with the art and the symbolism. You got to put that all aside and go back to the original source. What do the Japanese say? Yokais. How do they describe yokais as these fiery kind of substance things? These these things that wisp around. Well, what do the Celts call them? They call them willow Will of the, the wisps. wisps, and they refer to them as orbs of light. What is Tinkerbell? The original author who made Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell wasn't female, it was a ball of light. It was symbolized a fairy. Okay, what do the Muslims say? They say jinns are like beings of fiery nature. In the Bible, the idea of the tongues of fire of the Holy Spirit, these could be angels or the essence of uh, the Holy Spirit coming down with intelligence. Okay, there's something to this characteristics that's very consistent. And now we see it by the Pentagon. The Pentagon showing these balls of light, these things that can morph in shape. And... Okay, so there is a connection through all this. And and given another 50 years, there's going to be papers coming out of universities that are going to start to describe very specific characteristics on the supernatural. So the ancients built these temples as a way to connect with the supernatural. They were able to figure out there's something beyond the sun. But they're using the sun as a symbol of these divine creatures, these Anunnaki, these Atens, the hidden one. That's what an e- and the word Aten means hidden one or to reveal. So the sun's a perfect symbol for that. The sun hides and then comes back up, just like these UFOs that poof in and poof out and play hocus pocus with you. So the Egyptians had the same, they experienced similar phenomena. So they represent that in art. But over time, the art gets in the way. Even today, you know, people get so confused on how you depict Jesus, okay? Or how do you depict God, okay? Is it a, a triangle? It's Illuminati? Okay, well, what does triangle refer to? It represents geometry, represents order. So, it, well, they take, the I mean, they take the over, they take over symbols too. And, and even like the Aryan race, for example, like it was never supposed to be the way they say now Aryans got a very bad connotation. That wasn't what it was supposed to be. 
in the in, yeah, the, theos, in the theosophical writings or in the Vedic literature or you know or the swastika yeah. they take over the swastika now even calling like the, that even the swastika uh, was a sun symbol. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they not take, anymore, take though. Not anymore. We ain't getting that one back ever. I, that's what I mean. No, you, you never don't even get try. it back. Don't even try. Even, we don't even want it back, Graham. Why do you want it back? You're talking about aliens and swastikas. Jesus Christ. I don't want to lose this anymore. This I, I just don't not want to lose good. anymore. What? Just, they're taking ISIS away from us, too. I mean, it's it's all getting taken away. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, symbols change depending on which political person has the power to change the symbol. Yeah. Um, but but there is an original source, and you can find back, go back far enough in time, and you do your research. You know, people like Graham Hancock have kind of figured this out. There is some essence of something spiritual going on um, that's having a material effect on people. You should get um, a sun now- symbol tattooed on your chest, Graham. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see how that goes for you at the beach. See, I, I want those is. back. I just don't want to lose anymore. Like freedom, soon enough, like freedom's going to be evil and that's going to be gone. Like can't even say the word freedom anymore. Freedom's always been evil. I don't it's mind. That's why I'm so. look at me. I look evil. I'm fine. I'm fine. With <laughs> I'm fine with being evil. Yeah. So, so speaking, so even since you're a Christian, I mean, do you, is, was Christ an initiate? I'm I mean, sorry. I kept he, saying Jesus Christ. Or, or that was, he, uh, uh <laughs> Sorry, I don't. Uh, like even Jesus, I don't think Jesus sometimes. Original name. I mean, it's a, it's a title. Like, what do you? What, did he come from Egypt as well? Because I mean, some people say that the Book of well, the Dead was uh, was the analogy for the resurrection. I mean, the Book of the Dead was talking about the resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus was built off that. And uh, yeah, well, the cultic Christians wanted to keep their identity, you know, politically and religiously, but they also wanted to adopt a new religion. They said, "Well, what if we, you know." take our symbols and apply it to Jesus. And it rightfully so, because maybe Jesus really is, let's say in Buddhist tradition, he really is the avatar of God, a body incarnated that God put his essence or his spirit of some sense and appeared in human form. Um, and this is a, this is referenced in a lot of ancient religions that the supernatural has the ability to somehow do this now, but not to certain levels or abilities. Let's say, you know, a demonic spirit might be able to make a ball in your house move, but maybe you can't teleport a Bigfoot in your house, okay? But they can make cryptids, okay? So, and the ancients did believe that, you know, the supernatural has these abilities, so God, you know, appears in the his avatar body of Jesus to, reassure, to kind of reassure what people already sort of believed that the supernatural can do. But it's But now he's proving it in a real historical sense. And, you know, Jesus isn't just a copy off of Horus and all that. Those are just symbols reapplied to emphasize Jesus. That's how the Vatican looks at it. They, that's why they have an obelisk. An obelisk is the perfect symbol to show that idea of resurrection, to show the geometry, the creator of God, all that. So an obelisk is the perfect symbol. And what better way than to have an obelisk from the original Garden of Egypt? the Garden of Eden. So yes, the the Vatican is adopting and culturally appropriating other legends and applying it to something actually that historically actually happened. So yeah, it was he initiated. Initiate, do you think was he a re- like? Do you think he was initiated? Did he travel around uh, in one of the mystery schools? Travel around India at all? Uh, even for Jesus, I, I mean, unless he can, unless he uses powers to teleport around, possibly. <laughs> But no, I think it's I think he's, he's God appeared in Jesus 
in a strategic location at the right time and moment in history because he knew that's about the time when Rome is reaching its peak. Okay, he didn't. God didn't appear, put his avatar body in the middle of Canada. Okay, I don't think it's going to spread civilization that quickly over there. I mean, I don't know. I'm sorry to put a bad rap on Canada, but or Australia. Okay, it'd be a bad place to try to poof God's avatar in Australia. But near the edge of Rome, that's strategic. So it's all. So has it out. happened? Has it happened uh, before that and since then? I don't think so. So no, not I don't like think with because Muhammad again, or Muhammad or Buddha or um, well, Krishna, I, yeah, yeah, Krishna, I do think that the supernatural did appear to Muhammad, and I think it appeared to Buddha, but in a different way that wasn't quite as impactful on geopolitics. Uh, well, it sort of was. The Muslims definitely were right, but with Muhammad, I believe he really did see an angel of some sort, and that really messed with him, and you know, completely affected civilization. And that could be also part of a larger master plan we don't see. And one way I look at religion is you could say, um, you know, the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, the Father is Islam, the Son is Christianity, the Holy Spirit is Buddhism or Hinduism combined together. So there's this kind of universal connection. But there's an ultimate source, the right path that leads you to that. Yeah, so yeah. those religions are evolving from, you know, an original source that all I think all major religions did come out of Egypt, okay? The idea of the sun god, well, I mean, yes, the sun's a perfect symbol. People would have started to worship it, but the, the real initiative, the, the, the priests, the priestesses, they, they would have realized that the sun isn't the god. It's just the symbol. But maybe the common people of those, you know, their civilization, they literally thought that was the god, but they didn't know the deeper symbolism. Yeah, but I like your I like your you know your description of the UFOs and the fireballs in that because that, that I think that's what we have to bring is these phenomena that we see that generally aren't just part of our age but that would have gone back and what would have they been like when they saw these different craft you know or or yeah. different uh, like you said a ball of fire that has its own will it seems you know I mean we Burning had Terry bush. Ray on this is way back now Terry Tabando oh, Terry about, Ray. Oh, this keeps popping up because it, he had you might want to write this one down too the invasion of the orange orbs and he he tracked all of MUFON was it MUFON or the other Peter Davenport's Peter Davenport's mm -hmm. website his database I can't remember what it's called MUFORK maybe or or, or UFORK mm -hmm. or something or but uh, he did. He put all the he put all the orange orb sightings into a database, and he tracked them all, time and place. And I mean, they were coming from three different areas. Like, so they're all a lot of them were at the same time of night, and they'd come from yeah. Catalina Island and they that area. Patterns, yeah. And there was patterns of these orange orbs. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that he never got the you know the acknowledgement. I don't think from the UFO community or the What's credit his name again? putting that book. Uh, it's Terry Ray. Um, invasion. We of had him on orbs. for episode one hundred. Episode okay. 100, yeah. That, so that's going way that back. That's like probably in 2014, 2015. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just because you saw the, the orange orb too. And I mean, if you're summoning these and then, Mine was and then red. White, red, red, yeah, okay. Red, yeah, I think there is. Yeah. I think, I think, I think the colors are symbolic. I think yeah. they do use colors to mess with people. Yeah. Like they're not but just it, limited to colors, they could be almost invisible. Because, yeah, you would be, some, you would be trying to, to summon those, me. right? Yeah. Yeah, well, it, that's it, that. It worked. I don't that's recommend what, it. <laughs> that's kind of what he he suggested is that it could be a cloaking device as well. That 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 uh, that, uh, that orange orb is, a, clo to, is yeah. a cloak. You know, I really wanted to believe. Like when I first got into UFOs, I really wanted to believe in the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But then I started to realize they're really just Hollywood indoctrinating me, making me want to believe that they're ETs. Because then you know, if they're ETs, then you know, 
we can we can fuck with them and you know get, get evolve and hybridize and be advanced and powerful like that or, seems or, like the or mindset. defend from an invasion <laughs> but yeah but the more i looked into it the more i, I like you know sort of realized that it's not fitting to the behavior of this film would an advanced civilization come light years away just to play hocus pocus with me at 10 o'clock at night i mean yeah it, the behavior doesn't fit the the practice um pragmatic idea of a civilization coming for harvesting resources okay if they're going to come they're going to come a billion times more in the sense of affecting civilization than columbus affected the indians okay things would be drastically different if aliens really did come and affect us okay or they're going to be like be very different filming us like uh like uh yeah. the planet earth will be like filming me I'll be putting on a show too. Season three. This is the last season of Planet Earth because they're either going to blow themselves up or leave the planet. I can't believe yeah. that uh, that fucking old bastard's still kicking. I hope they could just digitize his voice though, because I don't really want to listen to anyone else tell me about nature other than uh, oh, that guy, yeah. Attenborough. <laughs> Attenborough at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I grew up. In like the heyday of National Geographic, I remember staying up late yeah, every Sunday night to watch National Geographic Explorer. Came on at nine o'clock, mm-hmm. and uh, it was always my boy David Attenborough talking. I mean, I'm I, me and my kids are talking about this Nile cruise we're going on when we go to Egypt. I mean, you might as well just come to Egypt with us, uh, Peter. This is going on a cruise in Egypt. Well, we've got a we've got a <laughs> trip going. Uh, We've got. Isn't there, it isn't might there be a movie coming out about that, like the, the cruise on the Nile. There's some murders going on. So I, think I don't think. Movie. I hope no one gets murdered. <laughs> uh, we're we're doing our our Egypt contact at the cabin trip this November twelfth to twenty sixth. Cool. We got a bunch of people. We got a bunch of crazy special permissions. So we got like huh. we'll be able to access all the chambers of the Great Pyramid. We'll have. Uh, access to the Great Pyramid after hours for just our group. We're going underground at the Serapium. Uh, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole That's itinerary. <laughs> yeah, if you if, yeah. if you go over to UnchartedX.com/tour, it's got yeah, the itinerary for the trip that we're doing this year with the Snake Bros and Ben from Uncharted X. Ben, yeah. But I was thinking, yeah, he's a buddy of ours. We were just hanging out with That's him in cool. Randall Carlson, actually. Uh, huh. Funny enough, down in the Scablands of Washington in fall. But uh, me and my kids are talking about the Nile cruise part of it. And I'm like, I could just hear David Attenborough's voice just explaining the Nile perch coming up, and yeah, the Nile perch. I so we're going to yeah, if the I keys could do it, I'd be doing the, it. The Sphinx, the Step Pyramid, Osiris Shaft, the Red Pyramid, Bent Pyramid, Abu Sir. One Unas. idea I had on Atlantis is if we can't find the remnants of Atlantis, is it possible that all the stones we see in Egypt were reclamated? For example. The three main pyramids of Egypt. What if those stones, part some of them, were the stone walls of Atlantis? And they said, well, Atlantis is pretty much sinking now. We can't rebuild the island. It's just too much work. We let's do something different. Let's like maybe Atlantis originally had a so an obelisk tower in the in the center, um, and that was the inspiration for Tower of Babel, and that fell and everything collapsed. And so, what if they took those stones to recreate Neo Atlantis, but this time it was a pyramid age? Not just a solar obelisk tower and a, a moat city state. Um, so I, I do think that it's possible that yeah, some of the remnants of the pyramids could be remnants of Atlantis. Some of the remnants of Heliopolis, 
uh, different temples of Egypt. All those stones could be aspects of Atlantis. And that's why you sort of can argue that because we know that many stones, as I think as Brian Forster has shown, that there's a lot of recycling going on, even at Tanis. Um, Brian Forster, this is, I don't know if you guys probably heard of him, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's shown, and I agree with him as a designer, that yeah, it looks like these things have been reshaped, recut, and um, possibly, I mean, people might say, well, we know where the quarry is for the pyramids. Yes, but maybe that same quarry was used for Atlantis. So there's a lot of overlap, and that's what complicates the legend. Do you think they're functional? The pyramids was it a was it a uh, you know a, a, a century, it's a century, century deprivation chamber at all or anything? Or what do you think it was? And like, um, I don't really agree with everything. Like the YouTuber was his name, uh, Ancient Architects. He argues about the pyramids trying to be a machine. Even he starts to disagree. He's like, ah, maybe this doesn't make any sense. No, I do think there were there were definitely tombs, but not for one pharaoh. If I were a pharaoh, I'm like, hey, dude, the other guy made a big ass pyramid. I'm gonna take his body out, replace it, <laughs> and have my relatives go in there. So I do think it's it's a pyramid, but all I mean, a pyramid for a tomb, but also could be like a throne room. I think it may have been used like a throne room. And I also do agree with, um, oh, what's his name? Ralph Ellis, the author Ralph Ellis. He argues that the original Mount Sinai, I don't think was in Sinai Peninsula. I think that name was re-changed its location. I think the real Mount Sinai was the Great Pyramids. Um, And that's where Moses went. Because he was Egyptian. And that that was the essence of the Pyramid of God. Those pyramids are a monument to God and the pharaohs an essence of the supernatural, as well as a monument to their civilization. And I do think it's part of a master plan. I do think, as Robert Bavall kind of points out, there seems to be a connection with um, Orion's belt and the layout. It's not perfect, of course, you know, you know, they make mistakes. But I do think there is an overall master plan that multiple pharaohs were trying to keep to. It's not like they were trying to completely obliterate the last pharaoh in some cases, yes, but they were, a few of them did honor their past, okay? People do have some some pride and honor for their past, and they want to keep those monuments and expand the monuments and keep presenting that master plan of Orion's belt and to reference Osiris. So, yeah, um, but I don't think it's a machine. No, it's just a bunch of blocks. Okay, but what's amazing is, you know, it's an architectural wonder, and it's not, I don't believe it was done just by slave labor. I think they had to have mechanical systems. They used a lot of wood. They had metal. They had bronze. And in pot- potentially the pyramids, I do believe, is older than 3000 BC, possibly 5000 BC. Though they clearly um, had engineering of some kind. I mean, the boxes yeah. underground at the what's it called there? Serapium. At the Serapium yeah. are like fucking better than we could make today. Yeah, I mean, um, we could probably make it, but we just don't have the will. <laughs> well, yeah, we probably could. We just don't have the will. Yeah. yeah. We'd have yeah. to make a whole but, special machine. Like, you just have to make the biggest fucking crazy router you ever made, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I but think that still those... wouldn't explain, to, like, that shit Russ is showing you where it looks like they literally just started scooping off the face of the rocks. Like, you can even see where the trowel came up on the far side, except it's all basalt. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah, the salt ones are kind of crazy. Yeah, I have to look at that again. I think, um, yeah, Ben was showing that. Yeah, Ben and Russ or Ben and Russ has a presentation. Russ is going to come and do a show for us. But I mean, this has been great, Peter. I mean, an hour flew by. This has been fantastic. You really know, uh, you really know your stuff. 
Yeah, if you guys want me to come on, I can try to show some slides of a little bit oh, more detail. Yeah, yeah, that'd be I great. can't remember everything. Yeah, yeah, no, that'd yeah. be great because it's so good to have the visual of that area because even right now I was looking at the maps and I thought, you know, Egypt is so small compared to Saudi Arabia and that whole that whole that whole Africa. Like Egypt is just this tiny little thing in the middle, right? You can you see it from the moon. Thing. You yeah. can see it from the moon, the Nile yeah. Delta. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we should do that. We'll have do some visuals and we'll have you back on. I mean, what what would be your if you had to, you know, if you could sort of do ground penning, penetrating radar somewhere or do uh, do some excavation? What would you choose uh, in Egypt? The islands on the Nile, islands on the Nile, or uh, even it under Cairo. I mean, they've found stuff under the city of Cairo, and the problem is things are just built on top of things, and that's the problem. But yeah, under Cairo. And in the islands of the Nile, I bet there's some things about 30 feet below the silt. <laughs> there we yeah. go. It, it even, yeah, I think it's, I think where the Great Pyramids are right now, it's near that location. It's That's near really that quarry, it's near yeah, the Great yeah. Pyramids. That's where yeah. Atlantis, right at the front end of the, of the Garden of Eden. But I hope people, you know, really think about that. You know, those who are, you know, religious or not religious to really think of how that kind of connects and, and maybe we're keep putting Atlantis back, you know, way out in the Atlantic Ocean. And I do believe it's possible that maybe the Egyptians really did know that there was a lost continent out in the ocean. That was North and South America. That's Atlantis, sort of, in the continent sense. But then maybe um, the priest of Sias was getting a little confused with his own lost history of Egypt and conflating that. So that's when Solon maybe was placing that, or maybe Plato was reinterpreting it to be outside gates of Hercules because maybe the priest is... The priest did reference that there was a landmass, but there was also a separate story of a destructive city-state. So there may be two separate stories and that are put together over time. And that's the problem. Maybe that we have to kind of separate that out. Or look at it in a different perspective to that fits a little bit closer to what the mainstream archaeologists are saying, but at the same time also challenging that. Right on. How can people get a hold of you or see your work? Uh, they can just check out my YouTube channel at Enigma Seeker, and uh, I think I have a Gmail listed under there. Right on. Well, I'll, uh, I don't know if you have an email on there, but they can message you on the, they can okay. comment yeah. on your YouTube or something like that. Yeah, or, I don't. Yeah, yeah. Are you, is there, are you, are you, what are you doing these days? Like any, well, any fresh work? You said you might be working am, on a book or something or. Uh, well, I think that's more like probably my forties, uh, <laughs> but yeah, right now I'm still kind of the stage of still researching. I'm still need to see what, you know, Graham Hancock and Brian Forster and others are finding and kind of see how I can build upon that. Like Ralph Ellis, what's his books? What's he writing in his books? And, um, you know, still learn from those guys. Um, but as a landscape architect and uh, or designer, um, you know, and, and someone who has the anthropology, I don't want to diverge, you know, we don't have to diverge so far away from the mainstream archaeologists, but do present something that could actually capture the mainstream's attention. And it could be a solid argument. And I really hope people like Jimmy and Bright Insight, you know, would present a hypothesis like that. It's not just my hypothesis. There's others I've kind of thought about this. Um, so it's I'm just kind of building upon it. Right on. But, well, that sounds yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll keep in touch and we'll have you, we'll have you on for that video. We'll do like more of a visual thing um, and do it on video. And, this exciting right. World War Three started, I think, during the <laughs> podcast. So okay. exciting. No, if, people ask, yeah. if the people ask, where were you when Russia invaded Ukraine? We were right here, oh, podcast. Talking about Atlantis <laughs> and UFOs. Oh, yeah. I, love, I love the UFO part, too. That's fantastic. Oh. <laughs>
Right on, right Peter. On, Thanks right again on, for Peter. coming on the show. It's been a fantastic chat. It's always good to Thanks, uh, to find a new guest that nobody's heard before. This will be exciting to get you out to the world, and hopefully soon we'll have you face-to-face arguing about Atlantis with Randall Carlson. Oh, man, that'd be cool. We'll get you on Cosmographia face-to-face. I'm gonna be a, I'll probably be a little less abrasive on him, but no, no. <laughs> that was on you guys. No, no, it's all good. Randall's Thanks, a, he's a big old teddy bear. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Have a good day. Ciao for now. And that was our chat with Peter. What'd you think? No, I think it flew by. It did fly by. I wanted to stop him about 10 times during the UFOs and the ETs and interdimensional. And then, and at the beginning of his, his Atlantis Egypt thing, I had, I was had about 10 questions, but I was like, no, I'm just going to let him go and, and get his, his thing out here. And, uh, and then we'll sort of circle back possibly, but yeah, I thought that was great. Yeah, it was good. That was a good one for sure. Uh, always fun to hear a new. I mean, Egypt makes sense. It, it does. And it's make so sense. weird that he's like he's pretty close to the mainstream on some things, but then he's like, "Oh yeah, don't summon UFOs," uh, you know, because you never know what they are. You know, yeah. they be demons, and it's just not good. Like, it's just so big thanks, Peter, oh, for coming on the show. Me. Big thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, big thanks to all you motherfuckers who support the show. America.ca slash support. We couldn't do this show without you. It's a value for value for show, not a free show. Head over to grandamerica.ca slash support today. Sign up for a monthly, make a one-time donation. Whatever you want to do, whatever uh, makes your conscience clear when you're listening to the show and to compensate all the hard work we put into this thing. I'm working on a book called Ancient Egypt, The Light of the World, actually. There's some uh, interesting uh, chapters and books. Well, it's a 12-book series, but um, some of the chapters uh, get into some of the mysteries of the dead, uh, the book of the dead and the mysteries of Mementa. And, and it gets into the astron- uh, astronomical mythology, sign language, um, and uh, Hebrew Genesis and Egyptian wisdom. And a lot of talk about Dendera in this book. And we're going to Dendera. So I want to kind of look into, dig into it a little bit, see why this, why this book is referencing Dendera so much. You better be an Egypt expert by the time we go. I'll be quite disappointed. <laughs> this is super not. esoteric. It's very, it's very uh, deep. Adultbrain.ca. Check out all those audio books we've been working on over there. Contact at the cabin.com if you want to check out those events we were talking about earlier with Randall Carlson or Dave Matheson or Brown and Powell or all of the above. We have an all of the above. I don't think we can get them all in one place just yet. It's coming. Other than that, we love you guys. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Teach me all your secrets to get a good handle on a better way to live. How does one get out of bed every day in the throes of the apocalypse? Should I bury my head in the sand or sabotage their evil plan? I feel really trapped An ant burned by a magnifying glass It's all a little bit too convenient All the evidence went up in flames Phonies, fraudsters, scammers belong in the slammer My friend best give up their names Should I call on militia man Or pass out a petition pen I feel really trapped An ant burned by a magnifying glass I don't know what y'all been told But I got a soul made out of gold Sound off One, two, 
Sound off. Three, four. Cadence count. One, two. A big ball. Some time ago, a crazy dream came to me. I dreamt I was walking into World War Three. As prophetic as humanity, as aching bones, as frantic animals. Sophia rode it down, built an ark. Now she floats it down the river in the dark. As prophetic as deja vu. Thoughts for the life of me over the din of a bruised and broken culture. The media spins and splatters and spins and clatters and I cringe because it's psychological warfare. Don't you feel yourself getting really mad? How did we let it get this bad? Don't you feel really trapped like a brain in a vet? to close Pandora's box but sirens are singing me off a cliff I'm looking to hitchhike to Shangri-La over yonder Sophia would you give me a lift popped out of the Hegelian rebellion say goodbye to all you Machiavellians let evil destroy itself I'm bound for Shangri-La Shangri-La My dream if I could be in yours As prophetic as morning doves As groundhogs As fallen stars above Sophia wrote it down Built an ark Now we're floating it down A river dark As prophetic as white wolves As butterflies As rainbows Sophia sings now we built a plane, now we're taking flight above a river.